Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to All the Books a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 278, and today we are talking about books being released on September 22nd, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia Elsie Tuttle, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. Hello. So the National Book Award long list came out this week, like for all, all five categories, and the books are amazing. Lots of surprises. It feels like there's like no overlap with the Booker Prize this year, hardly at all. I think like the vanishing half, maybe. So I was a little surprised by some of the books that weren't on the list, but was more excited about the books that were on the list. Many, many of which we talked about on the show today. I'm so glad I don't have to pick because I don't think I could. <laughs> well, and I like that there's no overlap because like there's such a variety. Like, it's kind of boring when it when the same book wins all the same, like, all the prizes, yeah. regardless if it's amazing or not. I like the variety. Yeah. I like book awards. I don't know why. I like all, I like books in general. It doesn't matter if there's awards or not, but for some reason, I get really excited about awards. So, I like <laughs> to see, I'm like, yeah, they like that one too. Me too. <sighs> yeah. It just helps me to try and identify with. The people on your planet. I don't know. (laughs) So we are going to talk about more great books today. And I was going to say that maybe next year they'll be on the awards list. But no, we're still in 2020. Like some of the books that are on those lists haven't even come out yet. Totally. But I know of so many that I read already that are coming out next year that I think are going to get awards. Starting with The Rib King by Lady Hubbard. But we'll talk about that, you know, another time. I'm obsessed with that book, though. Okay, back to today. (laughs) Ooh, shiny. Uh, Back to today. Uh, We are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Okay, and now, Patricia, are you ready to talk about books? Absolutely. I'm totally ready to talk about books. Okay, well, too bad because I'm going first. It is September. It's September already. So wild. I can't believe it. This is a fantastic memoir. My first pick is called Dancing with the Octopus, a memoir of a crime by Deborah Harding. And before I start telling you about the book, I do want to give a content warning for the book and also for my discussion that there is mention of sexual assault, child abuse, suicide, and cancer. This is about Harding's life. Uh, She grew up in Nebraska. She was the second of four girls. Her father... Originally went to school to be a minister, but he got kicked out for sneaking into a girl's dormitory. Uh, And so he ended up working like selling products for Hostess. Uh, Her mother met him when she was young and they got married young. And basically her mom thought that was kind of a mistake right from the beginning. And so when Harding was young, uh, it was very obvious that her mother had a drinking problem. uh, And her father traveled a lot for work and her mother was very cruel to her and her sisters and abusive. And Harding, in turn, had a lot of anger. She details these stories of, like, being jealous of kids at school because they seemed to have, like, this normal life and these parents who were happy and these parents who were kind to them and they had all these these things that she wanted. And she, like, you know, she stole someone's Barbies and she pinched a girl at school and she was pretty mad. And some of it was just, like, normal kid stuff. Um, you know, her mother was physically abusive to her and her sisters. And... Then one day she came home and said, like when she was like 11 or something, her mom came home and said that she had found Jesus. And this was a a life-changing day for Harding herself because she went upstairs after this discussion with her mom and realized like she had taken Jesus into her heart too. And she started to go to church and started to go to to Bible camp and church groups and it changed her life. But she was still kind of mad and her mother continued to drink and she got in a lot of trouble and she butted heads with her mom. And sometimes, like, I mean, she just did, like, normal, like, dumb kid stuff. Like, she took a puff of a joint uh, when she was out one day, and her little sister told her mom, and her mom took her to the police station to turn her in to the police. And her, she went in the room with, like, the sergeant, and the sergeant, you know, was like, uh, I think your mom's overreacting, and it's a little worrying. Uh, you know, this behavior, your mother's behavior, not yours, you know. And, but, I mean, like, her mom was just, like, very strict and, and erratic sometimes. And so then we get to the crime part of this memoir. Uh, When Harding was 14, it was the day before Thanksgiving in November of 1978. There was a big ice storm and she was walking to her church for her youth group meeting. And 
it turns out that it had been canceled because of the storm. And as she was leaving, a man, uh, a teenager, he was 17, uh, pulled up in a van and abducted her at knife point. Uh, he was going to uh, hold her for ransom. He needed money, he said, and then decided that he was going to dispose of her, which is, you know, he didn't say this. This is like after. But then she started talking to him about God, and he decided that you know he was going to let her go. But before he let her go, he did assault her, and he abandoned her in a field, and she was like in just a shirt and pants, and she was freezing. Um, and she... She is safe. She walks to uh, for help. They catch the guy. And so now the story goes back and forth in time, like from the events, like this unfolding to also uh, 20 years later, she's with her fiance. They're living in London and she starts experiencing this paralysis where she gets this like really weird feeling and she can't move and everyone's looking at her and they don't understand what's wrong. And then she like faints and it keeps happening to her and she doesn't understand like why this is happening. And then we also hear about her time as a mother, like she's now a mother herself, and she's getting kind of a better understanding of what life was like for her mother. But also, she thinks that her mother, the way that she treated them was completely wrong. And she's kind of looking for some understanding and an apology from her mother, like and and, and she wants her mother to like own up to the way she treated them. And she's not she's not finding this in, and it's hurting her relationship with her mom. And she also talks about the guy that abducted her, she calls him Mr. K. She talks about like what his life was like when he was young. He was in and out of juvenile detention centers and he himself was assaulted and you know he grew up to be a criminal and what his life was like after he was arrested. And it's sad, you know, it's heartbreaking, but it's also, it's beautifully written and it's an excellent example of like trauma's long hold on people because after she after her abduction uh, her parents kind of just sort of pretended like it hadn't happened and nobody really talked about it to the point where when she started having these episodes she kind of didn't really understand why like what what could have happened in her life that was making this so like hard for her it's an incredible look at depression and parenthood and forgiveness and I, you know, I just read this along with another book that's coming out next year called The Babysitter, which is about, it's a memoir of a girl who grew up in the 60s and 70s. And I kind of identify with these books. I, I enjoy reading about these other kids who sort of grew up feral, like I did, where your parents left you at home alone when you were like eight years old, or they kicked you out in the morning and you came back when the sun came down, um, because you don't hear about kids doing those things anymore. Uh, and it's, and it's almost comforting, you know, obviously it's bad. Like some of the things, you know, that kids got up to because they were gone all day, it was bad. But I just find it a little comforting to like be like, oh yeah, this is how, this is how we did it back then. But now I'm getting off track. So this is called Dancing with the Octopus, A Memoir of a Crime by Deborah Harding. And it is excellent. Wonderful. Yeah, I definitely remember just like being at home when I was like nine, mm -hmm. like just me. Like that's, that's how we did it back then. Yeah. For my first pick, I have Spindlefish and Stars by Christiane M. Andrews. This is a middle grade fantasy inspired by Greek mythology. We start with a girl named Clo, short for Clotilde. I will say the author makes a choice to describe her as boyish and therefore ugly, which I think is kind of a gross thing to say. 
However, it only really appears in the very first chapter and doesn't seem to make any difference anywhere else in the book. I just want to give everyone a warning about that so it doesn't catch you by surprise. Anyway, Chloe moves from village to village with her father. The villagers in every town make fun of him because Chloe and her father are poor and the father, they say, has one foot in the grave. He seems, even though he's not that old, he just looks very old and can't stand up straight. And so they make fun, which is really awful. And so Chloe doesn't really talk to the village people at all. And they usually stay on the outskirts. And they stay in the village for a bit. And the father takes odd jobs, usually like night work, which is usually like cleaning, or sometimes he like touches up paintings and does dusting and stuff like that. And then after a little while, they skip town and head to the next village after the father usually steals a few provisions that he says the villagers won't miss. So in the beginning of the book, Chloe is waiting at the edge of the forest on the morning that they're about to leave but her father never meets her there. And for a year, they've been doing this for years and he always meets her there and he doesn't come. So instead, a boy finds her and delivers to her a parcel wrapped in her father's cloak and a letter. The letter also contains a ticket and the letter is very ink splattered. So it's hard to get the full message, but you get to see the letter in the book. And the ticket says it's half passage on a ship And she's to go to the docks, and she is hoping her father will meet her there, but she can't really read a lot of what the letter says, so she's just hoping. And it ends up that he does not meet her. She has no idea what's happened to him, but then she gets on the boat and gets dropped on an island where everything is gray. Like, everyone's dressed in gray, like, the sky is gray, the sea is gray, the ground is gray, and she can't understand the language. If you're reading this on audiobook, it's hard to tell that the language being spoken is actually English written backwards. So if you're able to actually read the physical book or ebook, you can kind of decipher what they're saying. So now Chloe is in the middle of who knows where without the only person she knows and loves, and she can't escape even though she tries multiple times. And she ends up at an old woman's house where she is forced to spin thread. And the woman weaves all day. And again, let me remind you, this is based on Greek mythology. So you can kind of tease apart who is who. And it's very clear that Chloe doesn't belong there. And she meets a boy named Carrie, who doesn't seem like he belongs there either. She ends up learning things she never knew about her father and things about her mother, who she never remembers even being around. And it's a story about weaving your own life and also how how one thread of life can affect so many others. And I thought it was really clever and I liked it. And the title is Spindlefish and Stars by Christiane M. Andrews. Okay, my next pick is called And Now She's Gone by Rachel Housel Hall. Before I start talking about it, I want to give a content warning that there will be a discussion of racism and physical and emotional abuse and assault. So this is a mystery. It's about a woman named Grayson Sykes. She is an investigator. She works for this big company, sort of hunting down information. And finally, her boss gives her her first big case. There is a doctor 
whose girlfriend has run off with his dog and he needs somebody to find them. Mostly his dog. He doesn't care so much about his girlfriend, Isabel. He says that she's done this a bunch. Uh, so Grayson's boss is like, you know, this is a piece of cake. It'll take like a day. Maybe you'll find her by the end of today. Maybe two. So Gray, they mostly call her Gray in this book, she starts looking into it. She goes and visits the doctor and immediately she hates him. She thinks he's smarmy and a racist, and she just gets a really bad feeling about him. And then she goes and interviews Isabel's co-workers, and they are like, oh, you know, he's abusive, and we heard all these stories about him, and he's a really bad man, and which is not what, you know, the doctor was telling Gray, you know, saying like, oh, she's just unpredictable and flighty. And then... She talks to Isabel's religious best friend who tells her a different story about their relationship. And then her other best friend, who is a straight out criminal that she can't seem to track down. And meanwhile, Gray is like finding all these different things. She goes to her house. She finds out like all this. She finds all this stuff that I'm not going to tell you what it is. That makes like no sense to her. Like, why does she have this in her house and pictures of people that she maybe doesn't even know? And meanwhile, this woman, Isabel, is supposedly texting Gray saying like, leave me alone, you know, I don't want you looking for me, but she can't find her. No sightings of her and no sightings of the dog. Like, she can't find this dog that that she's supposed to find. And nothing about Isabel or her life seems to be true. So, you know, Gray is worried because she hates this doctor so much. She's worried that he may actually be telling the truth. You know, she had all these ideas about him, like, you know, she was going to take him down, and now she realizes she's wrapped up in a more complicated, dangerous case than she realized. And in between the story of Gray looking for Isabel, we also hear the story of a woman. Gray's boss, Nick, helps women in domestic abuse situations disappear. He helps them find new names and new lives. And we hear the story of one of the women that he helped. I thought that Gray was awesome. I, I really thought she just kicked butt all over the place. Uh, I love the story how, like, it was just lies upon lies upon lies and, like, reveals. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? And sometimes I like reading mysteries, like old mysteries, because there's no technology. You know, you read a mystery where it could easily have been solved if somebody had a cell phone. But in this one, I actually enjoyed that there was the technology because it never really occurred to me before, like, in a mystery, like, that might not be the person behind the, the text that you're getting. Like, you might, like, someone else might be texting you from someone else's phone and and I just, I thought it was great. Also, on top of the things that I mentioned at the beginning, I want to say, before I read this book, I asked Jamie, who does our mystery newsletter, uh, I said, does the dog die? And she said, no, the dog does not die. Unfortunately, I did ask about the dog, but there is animal death in this book that I was not prepared for. So a heads up to, for that. This, I hope that there is another book in this series. I really enjoyed it. It is And Now She's Gone by Rachel Housel Hall. For my next pick, I have Redbone, The True Story of a Native American Rock Band by Christian Stabler, Sonia Paolini, and Tybalt Balahai. And I want to give a content warning because this is not only about the band, but it's about Native American rights and history. And there's definitely some anti-Indigenous stuff in there and also murder and stuff about the boarding schools. This nonfiction graphic novel is, like I said, both the story of Redbone, the band behind the song Come and Get Your Love, and the story of the Native American Civil Rights Movement, which, as all civil rights movements here in the U.S., the story is not yet complete. Brothers Pat and Lolly Vasquez 
started touring as a professional duo in 1959. Lolly passed away about 10 years ago, so this story is mostly told through Pat. Early on, they were pressured to change their name to something whiter or at least something less native. So they changed their last name to Vegas and hid their Native American background by trying to pass as Latino. They started getting more work this way and they were playing a bunch of clubs, they were in movies, and they were gaining popularity. They ended up influencing Jim Morrison and The Doors and they jammed with Jimi Hendrix, who suggested one, that there should be an all-native rock band, and two, that their band name should be Redbone. They didn't start the band immediately, but those conversations with Jimi Hendrix really stuck with them. Pat tells the stories of the other band members, how they came into music, and they're joining the band as well. But as I mentioned, it's not all about music. I learned so much that I had little to no knowledge about. Details are shared, like I said, about the boarding schools that Native children were sent to in order to basically beat, torture, and abuse their culture out of them. They connect stories about the American Indian movement, AIM as was known, to present-day movements like Standing Rock. It has stories about how Native Americans have been targeted by police and also about the occupation of Alcatraz. In fact, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I hope this year to go to the annual Unthanksgiving Day, also known as the Indigenous People's Sunrise Ceremony on Alcatraz, and people like get on a boat at 4.15 in the morning, and you go over to Alcatraz for sunrise, and there's like music and dancing and ceremony, and i I've seen it on the news, and I hope to go this year, but, you know, pandemic. There is so much more history in this book, I learned too, such as the Battle of Wounded Knee in 1973. It seems like Redbone played for everyone. They played in prisons, they played for Queen Elizabeth, but they definitely couldn't ignore what was happening socially, nor did they want to. As their songs got more political, the more the record label tried to censor them. So Redbone instead distributed the music in Europe where it became too much of a hit to ignore in the States. They really packed so much into this graphic novel, and I definitely recommend it. It's Redbone, The True Story of a Native American Rock Band by Christian Stabler, Sonia Paolini, and Tybalt Balahai. All right, my next pick is called Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots, and it is a novel about a world where superheroes and supervillains exist, and somebody's got to work for them. So in comes Anna. Anna is a young woman who has worked some dead-end jobs, and she's got bills, and she really needs work. So she takes a job at a temp agency for hench people for super villains or just regular villains. Um, and it's kind of like they do these menial tasks for the bad guys. But like somebody has to work for the bad guys and she kind of is like, well, you know, it's nothing too bad. And, you know, what's so bad about them? Like, you know, insurance companies are bad and, you know, oil companies are like, she kind of makes, she makes sense to her in her head, you know, and she needs a job. But then she ends up with this job working for this villain where she's supposed to just do this thing where uh, she's going to stand in a video and look like, you know, one of his bad assistants, but it turns out to be like this more nefarious crime that he's attempting to perpetrate. And the city's most famous superhero shows up in the middle of this because he's broadcasting live and basically just destroys the place. A bunch of people are killed. She is horribly injured in this event. 
Uh, now she can't work. She's unemployed. She has no money. And she's angry. Like, yes, she was doing this thing, but this guy just came in and, like, killed everybody around him and, you know, supposedly to save the day. Uh, and so she slowly reinvents herself. And she becomes this data-driven villain. She collects all this info on the superheroes of the world and discovers that so many innocent people were injured when they crashed through a building or threw someone else through a building or, you know, lifted this thing. And she starts using that info and she's gonna she's planning to take down the superheroes. And she gets a job working for the most famous supervillain, Leviathan. He's also the most unknowable supervillain. Uh, she becomes one of his hench people and then works her way up to assistant. And because he's like super impressed with all this information that she's been collecting and she's keeping tabs on all these superheroes and like working her way into their networks to try and take them down from the inside. It's dark, kind of like The Boys, if you've seen that show, The Boys, about the superheroes who are actually like the biggest jerks. But also, it's very funny and it makes a lot of points about heroes and villains and who we admire and who the good guys are and if you like books about superheroes or just lots of action and adventure i thought it was really fun it is hench by natalie Zena walshots and now we are going to hear from another sponsor look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay. Patricia, what do you have for us? For my next pick, I have My Life in the Purple Kingdom by Brownmark with Cynthia M. Urich, forward by Questlove. Brownmark was the bassist in Prince's band, The Revolution, for about five years at one of the heights of his success, the Purple Rain era. I love Prince's music. Huge fan. He was musically brilliant. But it's no secret that Prince was an abusive and manipulative person to work with. There was a comic collection a few years ago about queer women in music titled If This Be Sin, and there's a story about Wendy and Lisa, also part of the revolution and Prince's treatment of them. So it's not necessarily a secret. And back to Brownmark's book, which I really enjoyed, you can tell by the way that Brownmark tells his stories, he truly cherishes his experiences, even if they weren't all good. And he seems like just such an amazingly optimistic person. I definitely don't think that this book would be published if Prince were still alive because he was known for being really controlling and especially had a really tight handle on his image. Brownmark talks about growing up in Minneapolis and becoming absolutely obsessed with music. He was a natural at playing bass. He started a band and they'd play around the local clubs. And he tells stories about how the clubs were still really segregated and how he and his band helped pave the way for more integration. One evening in about 1981, he was 19 and rehearsing with his band at a community space and the phone rang and it was for him. It was Prince who asked Brownmark to audition for him. Prince told him that he would have someone pick him up at the 7-Eleven where he worked the next evening and to have the songs in all three albums ready to play in 24 hours. 
First of all, clearly Prince had eyes everywhere to know where Brownmark was rehearsing and where he worked, which was majorly unnerving. But obviously, Brownmark got the job. It's a bananas kind of Cinderella story in a lot of ways. Brownmark's first time on a plane is to fly to LA because Prince wants to take him shopping to get a new look. Brownmark's first ever live performance with Prince was when they opened for the Rolling Stones, which actually didn't go well at all. Clearly, the Rolling Stones audience, a white rock and roll audience, were not able to handle Prince's look and music, which I like to describe as, what if punk woke up one day and felt sexy? That's, that's what Prince's music is to me. So this whole book is full of WTF stories from aggressive fans to Prince's awful behavior, like eventually telling the lighting director to cut Brownmark's lighting on stage completely because Prince insisted on having all the attention. Through all of this, Brownmark is so just foolishly loyal, and reading it makes me think he had a really big heart. He was young, and he wanted to believe the best in people. It was a really good read. It's My Life in the Purple Kingdom by Brownmark with Cynthia M. Ulrich, forward by Questlove. Okay, my last book for today is one that people have been waiting a long, 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 long time to read. It is Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. Ali Brosh is the author of the book Hyperbole and a Half, which was also a blog in which she does these amazing cartoons telling stories about her life and also talking about how she deals with mental illness and stories about her dogs and her childhood. Uh, before I go any further, I want to give a content warning for discussions of mental illness, suicide, cancer, and animal death. Uh, so Hyperbole and a Half came out and everyone was like, this is the funniest book ever. And where is the next one? And they're like, oh, well, good news. We're going to have an another one really soon. And then nothing. And seven years went by. And people, we, I was reading some of the Goodreads comments were like, you know, where is this? Where is, where is this book? And people just like speculating about all these things. Uh, and then all of a sudden, about two months ago, this email came and said, we're bringing it to you in two months. And I got a copy and I read it. And I loved Hyperbole and Half. And I thought this book was excellent as well. But if you are expecting more of Hyperbole and Half, you will be disappointed. This is... A much more serious book. Around the time of the launch of Hyperbole and a Half, she had a cancer scare. She had a severe illness that required surgery. Her sister died by suicide. Her dog died and she got divorced all within like a year. And she talks about all these events. This book, you know, reflects, you know, how she was feeling and, and what she was going through during those events. It's really wrenching and honest, you know, and she has a lot of humor in the stories that she tells about this. But this book is definitely more serious and heart-wrenching than Hyperbole and a Half. You know, she tells a story about how after all this, she didn't know what to do with herself. She took a bunch of drugs and she got lost in the woods, you know, and, and she's talking about like how she had to navigate life in the midst of all this stuff happening and being so sad over everything and being depressed. And then she tells cute animal stories. There's a story about the cat that I thought was adorable. She has a cat. But it's also a really good look at when people are saying, where's the next book? Where's the next book? Like, this is what it looks like from the other side. Like, you have no idea what is happening in people's lives. And it's an excellent look at trauma and grief. And, you know, she tries to, you know, put her signature humor in it. 
and she's great at talking about being like completely honest like this is what mental illness is this is what it looks like this is what working through your stuff looks like and so i don't like i feel bad like i don't be like this book is a super downer and you shouldn't read it because i thought it was excellent but if you're expecting like a lot more like just funny dog cartoons uh you need to brace yourself because it's not just that but it is it is great and it is called solutions and other problems by ali brosh For my last pick, I have a graphic novel that came out earlier this month, What We Don't Talk About by Charlotte Christensen. This graphic novel is about Farai and Adam, and they have been in a relationship for two years. And Adam, who is white, has avoided introducing Farai, who is black, to his parents. After two years, Adam is finally bringing Farai to meet his parents. It is clear on the train ride that Adam is super nervous and also just a bit dodgy for Farai's like questions. As soon as his parents answer the door and say hello, we can see why. The microaggressions from Adam's mom start immediately and they are just a constant onslaught through the whole book. Like readers don't get a moment to catch our breath and I'm not complaining. It's it's just so accurate. When Farai confronts Adam, he tells her she's overreacting. When Farai finally puts her foot down and confronts the parents, she, Farai, is made out to be the villain and the person who's out of line. And there's so much deliberate gaslighting by Adam, the person who's supposed to have her back, and blatant gaslighting from the parents, too. Adam keeps saying things like, she didn't mean it like that, or you're overreacting, and on and on. And you can literally see the words on the page, and it's clear everything is awful. And Farai is made to think that, like, maybe she is overreacting. So this graphic novel does a phenomenal job of showing what many Black women have to go through when we're in interracial relationships. And not only sometimes with the non-Black partner's family, but it also happens when maybe meeting friends or other communities they belong to, especially if there aren't Black people in these communities. This kind of racial microaggression and gaslighting combination can be super common in workplaces that aren't diverse either. I'm just so impressed by the accuracy of this book and how the author was able to catch not only the obvious, but the nuance in this type of situation as well. On top of it all, the illustrations are gorgeous and the bold color palette is absolutely stunning. I definitely recommend the graphic novel, What We Don't Talk About by Charlotte Christensen. Okay. We had some amazing, serious books today. Seriously yeah. amazing books today? Seriously. Both those things work. Why not both? Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to read next? <laughs> next, I'm reading actually another book that comes out today, which is Fauna by Christiane Vednais. I have that too. I'm excited to read that. I, Me too. I just got an email saying like, starred, starred review. And I was like, ooh, I have this somewhere. Yeah, I, I got that too. I'm very <laughs> excited. Yeah. So apparently I'm very easily influenced by emails and awards. Uh, This is what we're learning today. I myself just got my hands on a book that came out a few years ago that I don't know how I missed it, but it's called Cat Girl's Day Off by Kimberly Polly. And it says it's a hilarious YA homage to Ferris Bueller's Chicago in which Natalie must use her talent, which is talking to cats, to solve a high profile celebrity kidnapping. 
That sounds amazing. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I want to. I, I want to talk to cats. I do talk to cats. I want cats to know what I'm saying. I want my cats to respect me. <laughs> they have no respect for me whatsoever. The only time they ever like me is when it's time to be fed. <laughs> I was going to say eating time. Yeah, they're like, let's pretend she's our friend. You know, they're like, just for now, you can sit with us if you have food. It's basically what it's like. I saw something online the other day that was like, people who don't like cats are also people who always try to be in control of things. <laughs> and, there was, and I was like, whoa, ooh, yikes. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> there might be something there. My cats are out of control, out of control <laughs> all the time. If they're not eating something, they're knocking something over or climbing up on something or pulling something down. It's like that 24-7 in my house. It's pretty fun, though, when they're not being bad. I like them. I talk about the cats a lot on here. It's really, it's all I have to talk about. Books and cats. Books and cats. Yeah. I'm into it. Edward Gorey t-shirt. So that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com and tell us about your cats. If you want to find us online, Patricia hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at The Info File. And I mostly hang out on Instagram at Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash allthebooks, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy reading. reading.